Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 26 of 2021, which means we are halfway through the year. I'm Chris Louie, and this week Brian is taking some well-deserved time off, so with me I have Glenn Medina. Hey everyone, welcome back and thanks for joining us. Happy to be back for podcast number 13, lucky number 13. We are experiencing a triple digit heat wave here in Northern California now, super hot and hoping to get my body in the pool sometime soon. Speaking of being wet, Brian is probably double soaked in liquor and underwater somewhere in the Bahamas. Brian is unavailable to do episode 13 with us this week because he's celebrating his anniversary. So congratulations to Brian and Corinne on 13 years of blissful marriage. This week, I'm ecstatic to introduce Zoltan Kovacs as our third co-host for the podcast. Zoltan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey guys. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, not only have I been a listener since the beginning of the podcast, I've had the pleasure of working with some of you guys at, at a few different startups. So just as a quick intro, I've spent the past few decades uh, after I got out of the army to, to focus on technology, specializing on network security as an expertise. And I'll say uh, I, I kind of uh, was fortunate to be in the position to help with the zero trust strategy and kind of bring that to market before it was a widely known thing. And uh, recently I've started a journey with a new uh, startup that's still in stealth mode and we're trying to solve the authorization problem in the current world where data is literally, literally everywhere. And last but not least, a fun tip. I grew up and lived in Silicon Valley most of my life, but I got to escape and uh, came out to the Nashville area a few years ago. Thanks again for having me on. A stealth mode startup. That sounds very stealthy. But thanks for being here, Zoltan, and we're glad to have you join us. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got four awesome stories for you this week, so sit back relax, and enjoy the show. Now, Zoltan, I'm sure you're aware that there was a character on the animated show Archer a couple years back named Dr. Zoltan Kovacs. I mean, really, what are the odds? In the history of cinema and TV, I have never, ever seen a character named Chris Louie. Is Zoltan Kovacs the John Smith of Hungary? Yes, Chris. Uh, Zoltan is actually a very common name in Hungary. If, if you Google it or, or, or Bing it, whatever search engine you use, you'll actually see it is one of the most common names out there. I think we prefer DuckDuckGo on this podcast. Touche. <laughs> All right. Well, on to our first story. The Darkside ransomware crew got their Bitcoin yanked. The U.S. FBI recovered $2.3 million out of the $4.4 million worth of Bitcoin that Colonial Pipeline paid to the DarkSide ransomware crew for the, an encryption key to unlock their systems. The current story is this is the affiliate payment, not DarkSide's cut of the ransom. So if you remember a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about how DarkSide operates as a Ransomware as a service business, DarkSide builds the code, they have the affiliates spread the, co the, the code and, and the ransomware. So this was the affiliates cut of the ransomware. It's also rumored right now that this particular affiliate, which infected Colonial, was a, teen a teenager or a fairly young hacker. Now, Bitcoin is meant to be an anonymous peer-to-peer -peer decentralized currency. And that's the whole point of Bitcoin, is that no bank, no government, or no intelligence agency can disrupt the flow of money across borders 
or between people. So this revelation really turns that model on its head, and Bitcoin is not untraceable and unrecoverable as people originally thought. Now, there are a few theories of how the FBI got, got this, this money back. The first one is the wallet was stored in an unencrypted fashion on a cloud server where the FBI had jurisdiction. Some of the foreign attack crews are starting to set up shop here in the U.S. They're renting out cloud servers here in the U.S., knowing that organizations like the, NS, the U.S. NSA cannot operate within U.S. borders. So they set up shop here in the U.S. The NSA can't do a sneak and peek and, and seize their server. But the FBI does have jurisdiction here, so they can subpoena that cloud service. They can yank files off those, those servers here in the U.S. So that's one theory. Another theory is some very, very scary people in Russia told the affiliate to give the money back or risk getting vanned, which, again, we talked about a couple episodes back. That's when somebody throws you in a van and you're just never seen again. Another theory is the FBI tagged the Bitcoins and followed them until the attackers got sloppy and moved them into a custodial account where, when they were grabbed. Now, this custodial account is when a, a person or a company sends the Bitcoin out to somebody, and that's usually the point where they try to convert it into cash or hard currency. But they, the coins are vulnerable there because the FBI can serve them a subpoena and grab those coins if they can prove that they were, they were obtained illegally. Darkseid originally wanted the, the payment to be made in the, uh, an alternative cryptocurrency called Monero, which is truly anonymous. But Colonial, they, they told Colonial they could pay in Bitcoin with a 10% upcharge, and that's what Colonial ended up doing. The last one is a very tinfoil hat uh, theory of how the FBI got the Bitcoin back is that the US NSA, the National Security Agency, they were the ones that actually created SHA-256, the hashing algorithm, uh, SHA-256. And Bitcoin uses SHA-256 for its private keys. So do you think there's a coincidence there that the NSA created SHA-256 and then the US was able to seize the Bitcoins that were sent to these Bitcoin addresses? Coincidence? Maybe. Who knows? So, no, that's a, a great theory. Um, now, if I had to choose one of those, Chris, uh, I like the last one. Uh, but that makes me also think if, if we have used those powers to retrieve uh, Bitcoin for in this situation, we would have done it in the past. And why not all of the, the Bitcoins, right? So uh, that one's interesting. Uh, and, and to your point earlier, right, Bitcoin and a lot of the other uh uh, coins out there, I and mean, that's one of the purpose of those decentralized blockchains, right? Is to be able to be "quote unquote" un anonymous, but it's not untraceable, right? So there, there's multiple companies like Elliptic uh, and CipherTrace that are, are trying to help prevent mo money laundering and other misuse of uh, these uh, systems. And it's possible, right? Uh, it's one of those things where you just need a to know one thing. You might know the wallet address of the person that sent the money. Well, you're able to look at the public uh, ledger and determine where did that go. Now you can wash it, you know, uh, spin that uh, through other uh, exchanges, but I, I guess like real cash, it's not impossible to, uh, to trace and then to, to get back. You know, I've watched a lot of movies in my time, but what's the possibility that it's like all it's yes, all of those things above. It's a piece of every one of those that creates this great scenario of what happened. Who knows? 
It's good conspiracy. Yeah, it's a good conspiracy theory, Chris. So. Yeah, I I'm really interested to actually see once the the real truth comes out of of what happened. You know, sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it can take a decade for the truth to come out and finally figure out what happened. I, I'd be interested because, I mean, that that was the whole concept of using cryptocurrency. That's why criminals love using it. Now, now there's a practical application for Bitcoin. The countries like El Salvador have made it one of their national currencies because it, it's it's so easy to move. There's the fees are are minuscule compared to uh, transfer fees that you know Western Union and, and and the like charge for it. So there's very good applications of it. But there's also the potential for, for misuse of that, which is why criminals favor it, because it is so easy to move. It is difficult, not impossible, but difficult to to trace and very difficult for for law enforcement to claw that back. Now, this sets a precedent that law enforcement was able to claw that back. And I don't know if it's going to be they don't want to release their secrets otherwise, because the criminals are always going to get smarter. They, they see what law enforcement does. They find a way to evade that. It's this whole cat and mouse game. But but I am really intrigued to know exactly what the FBI did to get the, those Bitcoins back. So let's ask another question. What do they do with the $2.3 million? Does that go back to Colonial? Or does that, like, does the FBI get a piece of that? Or does that get held in court somewhere as part of evidence? What's the process? <laughs> What does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, if if this was two point three million in cash and it was some kind of you know kidnapping ransom payment, is is that held in evidence? Does it eventually go back to the victim, or does you know a few hundred thousand get lost on the way to the evidence locker? It's like, well, yeah, what what exactly happens to that? I'm I'm guessing you know Colonial will get it back at some point. Maybe they'll, they'll keep it in evidence, and hopefully they'll be able to prosecute the people that that did this. But uh, I have a feeling it'll, it'll eventually go back to Colonial or you know, whatever insurance they, they use to pay this out. Yeah, and I have one little thing to add on to that. I, I can't recall the source, so I'd have to verify. But recently I did read an article that mentioned a while back where the I think it was the FBI – uh, they seized assets, including uh, Bitcoin, and they ended up auctioning it off. So that, if I remember correctly, is another interesting way. You know, just like they uh, auction off, you know, drug dealers like boats, yachts, things like that. Uh, apparently, it's happened with Bitcoin as well. So, so you auction off and like, hey, I've got a Bitcoin here, one Bitcoin. It's worth thirty. It's worth fifty-five thousand dollars. I take the first person. The first person goes, "I'll take it for five dollars," <laughs> and then it just kind of goes from there. Is that is that how that works? <laughs> so, or is this like silent auction where it's like, okay, I'm gonna put one Bitcoin down. Everybody puts in a little bit, uh, puts their and the, puts in their bid, and the highest bidder wins. And and then you find out like no one bid on it, and the and the kid that only put ten bucks down won one fifty-five thousand dollars. So <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those government auctions that you you hear about. Yeah, that's inter- That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard of the the auction system for, I think it was I think it was Silk Road. So I think it was it was it was for Silk Road, and that was you know, definitely illegally uh, obtained. This one, I think, there's a pretty clear chain of custody that it went from the the victim here, Colonial, to the the affiliate, and then back to it'll probably go back to the the victim. I'm, I'm guessing here. That's a, that's actually very important. That's what we would like to think. <laughs> that makes too much sense, Chris. <laughs> so. 
All right, on to our next topic. So one, and I'm quoting here, one quote benefit, I guess you can call it, about the, the ransomware scourge is that data breaches, as we knew it, things like uh, Capital One getting, getting breached a, a number of years ago, through things like misconfigured S3 buckets or misconfigured WAFs um, in favor of ransomware gangs actually exfiltrating the data before uh, encrypting it, it, it's like the bank robber, Willie Sutton. He says he robs banks because that's where the money is. And right now the money is in ransomware. There's not much of an appetite for data breaches, being able to monetize that data. So overall, I would say, at least in the news cycle, data breaches are down. There will come a time when ransomware is no longer profitable. And I think we're hopefully starting to see the downturn of ransomware, things like Colonial getting their, their coins back and these task force being created to really tackle the, the problem of ransomware and hopefully eliminate that problem altogether. But at some point, organizations will have to revisit and prioritize access to their, their data in the cloud because securing data and applications in the cloud is fundamentally different from securing data and applications in the data center. So things like privilege escalation in AWS um, it's no longer about trying to get root or add an access in the, the operating system or through SSH or RDP, one of those traditional means. That's still a factor, but accessing AWS resources and data is typically done by um, EC2 IAM, the Identity and Access Management role. And regardless of local credentials or permissions, a user on that particular EC2 instance can get access to AWS resources and databases on the EC2's assigned role, or even grab token information, execute some, some commands on their own machine. I remember, I think it was two years ago or so, Tesla had a Kubernetes server um, hacked because somebody posted somewhere on a public website the Kubernetes API key, and someone, sure enough, looked up that API key. He said, yep, that API key is still active. I'm going to go in there, cause a bunch of trouble uh, for Tesla, and that, that's all it took for them to, to get into the system. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's uh, uh, one of the big pieces, you know, as we transition, uh, you know, the security stack, that good old saying is, you know, security or, or it, it defense in depth, right? That definitely applies because you don't want people to have access to any machine or system that has access to the data, right? Um, but you're still going to need to remotely uh, access it, you know, the administrators. Um, so rooting or, or owning the OS itself, you know, that's still a problem, but yeah, like you mentioned, it, it's crazy with just how complicated this cloud infrastructure is, right? That's why a lot of tech companies are moving towards having, you know, there's a CIM, CSPM space now, right? It, it's targeting this massive environment where it's not as simple, right? It's not like you have a sim single Active Directory domain on-prem with some databases and that's it. You know, you've got different types of data, warehouses, data lakes, object stores, uh, and without talking about any particular uh, company that's been breached in the past, but Chris, kind of to your point earlier is, think about this way, is the user that somehow gets access to a machine like that or is able to take the, the token uh, session credentials for an IM role, there's really no user, quote unquote, associated with that particular role, but if they're able to execute access to like an S3 bucket, they can literally just run commands with the AWS CLI tools to list the buckets, copy them over, and then exfiltrate, right? It's almost as easy, easy as that. And it's a, it's a big problem. And I'll just kind of 
pause there, see what you guys think. It's fundable, It's like fundamental security controls, right? It's like, hey, you, you got to lock these things down. And I think what, what makes it a lot more difficult these days with these cloud services is the fact that you, you don't physically get to touch it anymore. Like if I had a server, I knew the server existed. I knew all the services that ran on that server. I installed the applications on top of that. Then I knew all the applications that ran on top of that. And I could I could touch it. And I could massage it, right? But now you're talking about Amazon. You're talking about where the 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 um, the, um, the EC2 uh, the storage is. You're talking about where the connections come from and how you secure that. There's all these moving pieces, and it's hard to ratify that, right? And 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 get that down to one. I've got one right now. I've had a like a five dollar or a seven dollar charge right now from Azure for the last three months. I've been trying to kill it. Like, hey, like, hey, you've got storage turned on. I'm like, no, I don't. Okay, great. I turn storage off. Oh, you got this other piece turned on, and another bill shows up, and I'm like, what do I got to do to turn off my Azure environment so that way I don't get a bill? Because I would like to think, I don't care if I don't have it on. The fact that you're still got storage defined out there that you're going to get charged for it, that's that's ridiculous. And there's no data. It's just something that I spun up for a lab and I can't get it turned off now. It's like, what do I have to do? I have to go to an expert to turn off $3 a month. It's just funny. So I, I can't imagine someone that knows what they're doing in a company business or doesn't know what they're doing in a company business and does this and doesn't secure this stuff properly. Right. Absolutely. And so it's the good old days where you had to physically drive into the data center to access something. And if if a three dollar a month bill showed up, you just flip the power switch and everything turns off and boom, you know, no more three dollars a month. But but like you said, moving to the cloud is 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 really complicated. It's not like running a data center. It's fundamentally different. And the way we we secure that is also fundamentally different. And I think that's a challenge for many organizations thinking they have the data center mind frame when they're trying to secure the cloud, but you really need to think in the cloud in order to secure it properly. Definitely. It, it, last thing I'll leave on, on this topic, if it's okay with you guys, is I have like a simple question for even the listeners or a- anyone out here. Um, fundamentally, a simple question. It, even if you just have 10 AWS accounts, some Azure tenants, maybe sprinkle in some Snowflake here or there, I ask you, who has access to what data? You, you can't answer that very easily. Uh, almost no one can out of the box with the tools. There's a lot of uh, open source tools that are, have been worked on, but nothing's easy to use. So if you have like business users, auditors that simply need to determine, hey, you know, we're under now this new compliance or regulation. I just need to check who has access to the data. It, it's almost impossible to do that today. So I think that's one of the next problems that we, we have to solve. Yeah, just going back to basics, principle of least privilege, and how do we know that somebody has least privilege? Well, we don't. So it's definitely going to be a challenge. Yeah, fun times ahead of us, right? And I think that's why we all have jobs. So. <laughs> but a time to be alive. It's a good time to be alive. <laughs> so, All right, on to our next topic. EA Games, a popular video game developer, Electronic Arts, uh, they're a developer and a publisher, they got hacked and attackers stole their source code. EA is responsible for most of the games by the major sports franchises such as FIFA and MLB and also the first-person shooter series, uh, Battlefield. How they got hacked has a few stories chained together, so bear with me here. 
In a somewhat self-serving research project, a VPN vendor found that a malware campaign used pirated games and pirated versions of popular software like Adobe's Photoshop, and they used those pirated copies of software to infect about you know, 3.2 million users with this malware. The malware stole about 1.2 terabytes of personal data, including 26 million login credentials, and 2 billion, that's 2 billion with a B, 2 billion cookies. Now, installing malware and pirated software to seal data is nothing new. However, when we dive into how EA got hacked, things will start making sense here. After EA rolled out instant response in response to, to getting hacked, they were able to track the hacker's initial entry point, which was a stolen cookie, and that stolen cookie allowed the attackers to impersonate an EA employee on Slack. That's their collaboration platform. Once the attackers got onto Slack using that stolen cookie, the attackers said that they lost their phone at a party and they requested a new multi-factor token from the IT help desk, which they happily supplied this user. Armed with their new MFA token, the attackers accessed the corporate network and stole the game's source code. So where have we seen this before? I don't know, but surely explains why now I have to MFA every 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, uh, said fun. <laughs> so yeah. Where have we seen that before, Chris? Sultan? You got me. You got me stumped on that one, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the usual story of of somebody getting into a VPN using stolen credentials. And we've been trained to say MFA all the things. And that's supposed to be end all be all. But, you know, as security practitioners here, we, we always like security to be defense in depth and, and use layers that just because you have an MFA token doesn't mean you're, you're unhackable. And we actually saw this 10 years ago in 2011 when RSA got hacked and all the secure ID tokens got stolen and then the the uh, Chinese military intelligence unit uh, breached Lockheed by they hacked RSA they hacked an entire MFA method just to hack a single target which was um, allegedly Lockheed at the time so just because you have multi-factor authentication turned on doesn't prevent you from getting hacked and the it, it slowed them down because these attackers they got into slack they, they were able to see things this wasn't as bad as Twitter where Twitter posted admin credentials in the Slack channel, like they pinned admin credentials in the Slack channel, which is a terrible idea to begin with. But they used social engineering, contacted the help desk, got the MFA token, and then logged into to the, the corporate network through, through VPN. And this is a recurring theme that we've been talking about week after week when we talk about breaches and we talk about ransomware attacks, that it's almost inevitable that most organizations are going to be attacked, but how do you contain the blast radius of that? Okay, so what? Somebody stole somebody's login information and got their MFA token. Should they have full access to things like game source code? Most people shouldn't. Only you know, key developers or people in, in privileged positions should have access to the source code. But if this is your average user just seeing what's out there on the, on the corporate network, they didn't have good segregation or network segregation or or uh, workloads weren't segmented properly, that workloads were talking to each other that shouldn't have. 
and as a result, all the source code got leaked. But it doesn't this go back down to like the failure, if if you think about it, right? Where a lot of the security breaches happen, it's because they're able to attack MFA, right? They're able to impersonate MFA, get it reset. So you would think like, okay, great, I'm gonna contact the help desk. And I'm going to go try and get them to reset the token. It's like, it should be like red flags going on all over the place, right? And it's it's like, okay, so what was the IT's process to reset that MFA? Did they validate who the person was? Did they get the call from an identified user? And did they impersonate? Did they, you know, what, like, because I know I feel like I have to, you know, offer up my my children's name and then you know you know all kinds of things like my my brother's middle name and my sister's husband's um last name in order to get mfa'd in right or to to recreate that token did that was that where's there was there a breakdown in that is that where things are because i don't know things to talk about right yeah no i mean i i definitely agree and i'd say it, it's it's easy I, I think in hindsight for us to always look at oh an it person, you know, reset their code, right? But reality is I think a lot of them, you know, there's good intentions. People won't be helpful, especially these days we're on Zooms all day. So it's like someone pings you in Slack, you just naturally want, or you're inclined to help them out. Um, and I was rolling through some, you know, Reddit's trying to find some more information on here. And there's a couple questions that came up and uh, it could have been as simple as, yeah, let's implement a process where, and sure, it might be annoying to, to all of us. If IT needs to reset something like that, they need to do a Zoom call with a video turned on for the user. And most corporations, you know, require, you know, your photo ID, right? Or, or to be in your Google account or whatever, so they can at least validate that you're the real user. That I, I think could at least prevent a lot of the the non-technical <laughs> aspects of this breach. Yeah, it, I think I remember I was just taking some insider threat training, right? Where... It's, uh, hey, if someone is calling you to tell you to reset their password or send money, how do you validate? Well, hang up the phone is training number one, and then call the person back directly through means that you, you know, like their cell phone or, you know, send them, send them a call directly, right? So, that, I mean, again, checks and balances there, and some of it's a little difficult. I, I liken this to, um, like I said, I'll say this, right? I never carry around my debit card or my bank card. Right. So when I go to the when I go to the bank and I did this the other day, I say, hey, I need to pull out some money. And they're like, hey, do you have a bank card? I'm like, nope, shredded it when I first got it. And they're like, well, why'd you do that? Now you're going to have a hard time pulling money out. And I said, exactly. <laughs> what are you going to ask me for? <laughs> and she says, I'm going to ask you for your driver's license. I said, perfect. She goes, do you have another piece of, of ID? And I said, exactly. Here's my second piece of ID. And she says, wow, you really like making it difficult. I said, if you're making it difficult for me, I'd like to think you're going to make it difficult for the person that's trying to impersonate me as well. So the harder I have access to my money, the better off I am. Right? Yeah, there's, there's definitely that balance between security and convenience. Yeah. So things that are super secure and convenient and things that are super convenient are, are not very secure. So it's, it's, it's finding the balance and determining yeah. what, what level of risk yeah. the organization is willing to accept. Well, but it is all about, it's all about risk mitigation. Yeah. You're never going to get rid of yeah. every attack. You can only mitigate the risk. And, and I think that's the second part of this, right? I think Chris and, and, and Zoltan, I think you guys alluded to this, right? We talk about zero trust a lot. 
and it's tie the user, an authenticated user, tie it to a device, forget the network that they're writing on, right? And then to the specific application that they need access to, right? Only that application. So let's say, hey, I need to get to finance. Well, I, I better I better provide some level of, of, of um, additional MFA, right? Or additional checks. But I'm not going to get over to, let's say, legal or whatever, right, to the legal services quite differently than than you would think from your traditional VPN networks, right, which is probably what happened here is they had access to VPN and then, you know, just by VPN alone, they had access east-west. Now, I can't say, right, I said not, we're not going to sit here and, 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 and cast stones across the way and not know how networks are built because maybe there were firewalls in between or whatnot. But from a standpoint of, you know, this zero trust, you know, user, device, application, who cares what network they're on, right? Yeah, and I'm actually curious in this breach, do you guys know, um, I couldn't find a good answer to it online, is once they actually got onto the network, uh, I suspect they probably ran the usual suite of tools to kind of understand where the crown jewels are, um, and how long were they in the network before they actually got the source code for the games? And it's interesting that source code itself didn't have another layer of protection, <laughs> you know, uh, it's just interesting how that happened and, and how quickly uh, they got it out. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be a failure. I don't know if failure is the right word. Maybe a couple missteps. Uh, there, There's always multiple steps in an attack like this where the attacker could have been stopped, but they, they weren't. And we, we call it the cyber kill chain that there's there's certain points if you break any link in the chain then the attack falls apart and all these links have to line up perfectly for the attack to succeed and, and in this case it, it succeeded so i think there were there are multiple missteps here uh, things like issuing an mfa token without verifying the user's identity like like glenn mentioned um, and once we get the report uh, maybe if it ever becomes public we'll be able to see exactly what happened but i, I think based on our our decades of experience and what we've been seeing in the news the scenario we laid out is, is very likely going to be exactly what happened. All right, on to our last topic. And our last topic is going to be a rotating segment. And this week's topic is, if you got arrested and made your phone call to your wife, what crime would she most likely think you committed? <laughs> and I'll go first. I think if, if I called my wife and said, you know, they, I got arrested, she would probably think it was maybe like tax evasion, something that's, 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 that's white collar. Cause like, I'm, I'm not a short tempered guy and not a violent guy. Like bar fight would not be at the top of, of the list here. So it would be something either something like tax evasion or, you know, mistaken identity. Like I looked like a guy that, that, that they were, they were going after. I think Maybe that that would probably be the most likely crime she would she would think I committed and ended up getting arrested for. Oh, God! I guess I'm next. <laughs> uh, first, my wife probably wouldn't answer the phone. Uh, second is she'd probably leave me in jail for at least the the, the time being until I got released by someone else. Um, and, and third, uh, it, she'd probably say what did you do? Like just shaking her head, like pure, utter disapproval and, and just ups, you know, totally being upset at me. So, and, and then probably fourth is I probably wouldn't call my wife. <laughs> so, 
but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it'd probably be like speeding or hitting some jerkwad that was like, you know, I don't know, like, uh, it, what, what do you call it when, when you're, you're road rage road type rage. incident where it's yeah, like, sure, okay, right. I tried to be calm. The guy stepped out of his car and instead of stepping out of the car, I ran the guy over cause he had a, you know, cause he had a shot, he had a gun or he had a, he had a tire iron and like, okay, I'm not going to get out of the car, but I'll, I will run you over. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I practiced that in my head. Yeah. I better not say that. Right. Cause that would be like intentional right so uh yeah no nothing like that at all <laughs> oh man i don't know guys should i trust you guys this, or should i be pleading the fifth here like dave <laughs> Chappelle? um <laughs> it's um this one was easy for me as well um kind of like glenn i'd say because my wife tells me this all the time uh luckily i don't drive much anymore and there's not too much traffic where i i live now but uh Definitely, it would be some kind of road rage. Um, I used to be bad, especially right after I got out of the army. Uh, been getting better over the years, but uh, road rage, if someone does something stupid and would hit me, especially if one of the kids were in the car, oh, I, yeah. I think I would... I'm, also, I'm a small dude, but I, 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 don't, I think I'd potentially lose it. Again, hypothetically. Uh, or some kind of like someone driving in the neighborhood really fast and you know blowing through stop signs when we still live in a neighborhood i'm like why would you do that when there's kids everywhere so i'd probably try to beat them yeah. up or something yeah younger me versus older me older me i won't start a fight but i'll finish it <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah younger me would start the fight <laughs> so Totally start the fight, yeah, and, and, and like pick at the scab. <laughs> so yeah, oh, man. But Chris, I, I'm shocked. Tax evasion. <laughs> not that yeah, you would like, do I, that. I, I... No, definitely not. But I mean, like I, I don't have road rage incidents. Like you know, I'll get upset if someone cuts me off. But like I, I, I guess it's just not in my nature. I, I don't. I, I guess I don't see myself getting into an, an altercation over over something like that. So I'm. I was trying to think, and it's like, well wouldn't be kidnapping it wouldn't be a bar fight it wouldn't be assault so i'm like hmm, maybe yeah maybe like tax evasion or downloading an illegal copy of adobe photoshop maybe that might be <laughs> the, the more likely answer and that's only oh. for testing that's only would only be for only test for testing <laughs> only for security research purposes that's right. i'm looking for that malware that's right embedded in that pirated software that's for, right for science of course well, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, our guest co-host Zoltan is up. All right, guys. What, what concert would cost only 45 cents? Give up? 50 cent featuring Nickelback. There you go. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Good one. All right, to wrap things up, Darkside gets their Bitcoin yanked. Compromising AWS accounts is no longer about root or SSH access. EA learns a painful lesson in operational security. And my co-host might have some road rate issues. You don't know me, Domino's. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. And just so you know, by listening to this podcast, you have a 20% greater chance of your name being mentioned on a TV show. If you know anyone else who would like a 20% greater chance of having their name mentioned on a TV show, please share this podcast with them. 
The best way to find us is to search for the PEPCAC podcast on your favorite podcast listening app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For my co-hosts Glenn Medina and Zoltan Kovacs, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you all. Stay cool and stay wet. Thank you all. Thanks, Take care.